welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Due to the unprecedented times we're living in, courtesy COVID-19, we are recording our conversations remotely. So you might notice a difference in audio quality. What remains the same, however, is getting to know yet another terrific woman. And in these unprecedented times, who better to have a conversation with than my guest today? Claudia Kunin is a certified grief counselor. She has a master's in transpersonal psychology and an advanced grief counseling certificate. She's also the author of two books, The Creative Toolkit for Working with Grief and Bereavement, A Practitioner's Guide, and Shattered by Grief, Picking Up the Pieces to Become Whole Again. Through her work with dying patients and their family members at Villa Marie Claire, a residential hospice and care facility in New Jersey, Claudia developed Karuna Cards. They provide creative ideas for dealing with grief and difficult life decisions. In addition to her private practice, Claudia holds workshops and teaches creative strategies for grief as part of the Art of Dying Institute at the New York Open Center in New York City. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sandy. It's great to be here. Could you ever imagine that this would be going on in our lifetimes? This is really the strangest situation. And I, as I'm sitting in isolation in my home in Hudson, New York, I've been thinking about uh, the grief, the collective grief that we're all experiencing as we isolate ourselves. And I've been talking with many people in the thanatology community and in um, my, my larger circle of people about how we can help. Um, I've really been wanting to figure out how to talk about grief in this time. And I think that for people who are grieving, it becomes even stronger because when you're grieving, you're already feeling isolated and now you're, that isolation is enforced. So I think I am pleased to be here in this time because there's just so much to talk about in terms of the collective grief and the personal grief that we're experiencing right now. How do we reach out to people? How has your practice changed in these last few weeks? I had one week in the middle of March where I still had people coming to my office, but I was keeping my distance from them and I had hand sanitizer and I was wiping everything down before they came in and after they left. By March 20th or so, I began seeing people on video. So it has changed in that it's a very different way of talking with people. Um, and there have been some clients who really don't want to do it. So I've, I have about half the people that I usually work with who are not seeing me right now because they don't want to do it through video or they don't have any privacy in their home because they're working from home and maybe there's other family members around. So they're choosing to wait until this is over. That's one way that it's changed. How has it impacted you? Personally, it's impacted me in that I feel the collective grief very strongly. On the rare occasions that I have left my home, I end up coming back sort of buzzing with anxiety because there seems to be so much anxiety, uncertainty, and panic out there. Even if I'm not speaking with people because we're keeping our distance, I still feel it very strongly. And it makes me want to try to do something about it. One of the things that I've really been thinking about is that we keep using this term social distancing, and I really think that's the wrong term. We are physically distancing from each other, but we need to be socially connected. And you actually asked me that a minute or two ago, Sandy. Um, So what I've been doing is I've been really trying actively to reach out, not just to my family and my friends, which I am doing, and I'm I'm doing that by having Skype meetings with my friend who was in Spain or my friend in, in Portland, Oregon, but I'm also 
reaching out to colleagues that I have been connected with for a while and just sharing information about how we feel in this time and what our skill sets are that we can offer to other people. I've also joined a collective called The Virtual Funeral with a whole group of professionals that are designing ways for people to commune with one another and mourn together when somebody dies in this time because there's so many restrictions on who can attend services or who can come to a funeral or who can even be with the person when they're dying. And this is very hard for people. So there's a, a whole group of people that are discussing this. There are um, funeral directors and end-of-life doulas, end-of-life people and grief counselors. And I'm thinking about the, the folks on the front line. How do we help them? How do you help them? Well, I have wanted to help them. I have signed up with the New York State uh, Mental Health uh, Hotline. There's uh, Governor Cuomo offered uh, a hotline for people if you were in working in mental health or in grief to sign up to offer your support, and I, I did sign up with that. I signed up with another one as well, but so far I haven't been called. I do want to be able to help people. I have experience doing workshops on vicarious trauma, which is uh, sort of what they're experiencing. They're traumatized by the trauma of their, of their patients and also with everything that they're having to deal with. And it's huge. But at this moment in time, those people on the front lines, they're not taking any time for themselves. Let's get personal, Claudia. You didn't decide, when I grow up, I'm going to be a grief counselor. No, not at all. <laughs> How did this decision come to you? The decision came because death just crashed into my life. I was on vacation with my husband, Albie, who was uh, really working way too hard. He was working 100 hours a week and over the weekends, and we really felt like we were losing him. And I even said to him, your job is killing you. So his company sent us on a vacation um, to New Mexico, and we had never left our children home alone before. Um, they were 14, 17, and 20 at the time. And um, Albie and I both had sisters who lived nearby, so they had aunts and uncles that were close by. So we went to New Mexico, and we arrived on Saturday. Uh, on Sunday and Monday, I just wanted him to totally relax and then I thought by Wednesday we would sit down and talk about how we could change our lives so he didn't have to be working so hard. Um, but Tuesday night he had a heart attack and died. Just there and then? Just there and then. So In a place that you were totally unfamiliar with? Completely unfamiliar. And my children, I'm in New Mexico, my children are in New York, and I want to be the one to tell them how am I going to do that. It, it was very, I mean, I was hyperventilating. They had to give me oxygen. And at the same time, I'm thinking, how, how am I going to deal with this? And how am I going to help my children? After I came home and in those first few months, I did what I always do. I went to my journal. I wrote 12 journals that year. And I used to keep it next to me on, on my bed because I didn't sleep very, very well. I'd sleep for maybe an hour, maybe two hours. And then I'd wake up sobbing. And then I'd reach for my journal and I'd just write out my experience, my feelings in the journal. And that helped get me through. And I did a lot of other creative process things. And while I was doing those creative things, I began to think that there might be a way to help other people because this pain tuned me in to what grief feels like. I mean, even though I had lost grandparents and I'd lost a cousin and some friends, nothing felt as, as catastrophic as the death of Albie in my life. So I thought there might be a way to help people in a, in a different way. I didn't want to become a social worker. I didn't want to become a therapist. I wanted to be a creative grief counselor. What's it like though for you to, be surrounded by grief? 
in the beginning, it was very, very hard. And I, I tested myself before I even went back to school. Um, I volunteered at a local hospice just to see if I could do it because I was very aware that um, other people's grief was going to be triggering for me. But I also knew that I didn't know about all the other types of experiences that people that people have, like long-term caregiving for someone who's ill. I didn't have that. I had a sudden death. I didn't know what it was like you know, to have that kind of a stress. So I wanted to learn more. When I went back to get my master's in transpersonal psychology, I knew that that was not a grief program, but I put every class through the lens of how to come back to wholeness after you've been shattered by grief. And then when I went to Brooklyn College for the grief counseling certificate, the head of the program, Dr. David Balk, who's very big in the thanatology world, sat me down and said, are you really ready for this? Because it hasn't been that long since you lost your husband. And I told him that I thought I might be ready. And even if I wasn't, I still wanted to do it. And he was right. I really wasn't that ready. You mentioned thanatology. I don't know what that is. Yes, it's a great word. Thanatology is the study of death, dying, and bereavement. And it's, it's named for the very minor Greek god, Thanatos, who with his brother Hypnos helps assure people of an easy, calm death. What do you do to help and soothe those among us who are not experiencing loss but are afraid that we could be next? I think that we all actually feel to some extent, this collective grief and the, the fear and anxiety is, is very much like anticipatory grief. Like we're afraid that it's going to happen to us and we don't know what that would mean. What I like to do when I approach people, I like to meet them where they are. So I try to take myself and my own reactions sort of out of the picture a little bit to the side and just try to be present with whatever the person that I'm working with is expressing and then try to encourage them to, to explore that deeper and to verbalize the fears or maybe even to work creatively with the fears. I'm not one to think that, um, quote, negative emotions like fear or anger shouldn't be glossed over. I think that they need to have a voice. So I want to encourage people to speak um, from their heart and to express what they're feeling. And then once, once they've given it that voice, then they can figure out how to cope with it or how to set it aside or um, how to go beyond it. I don't often get personal in my conversations, but in the spirit of disclosure, you and I have met, and we met uh, more than five years ago at Villa Marie Claire, which is in New Jersey. And why did we meet? Because my husband was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, and there was just no cure for him. And we both knew that it was sort of only a matter of time. And my son and daughter-in-law had discovered the villa, which is an extraordinary place. The people who run it are extraordinary. And in the midst of all of this, as you're trying to come to grips with what's going on in your life, one of the services they provide are people like you. Yes. And how did you come to join this wonderful place? Having chosen not to become a social worker initially was kind of a problem because I, I'm not a licensed therapist. So how to go out and get a job and work in this field was a challenge. But I had a colleague at Brooklyn College who was getting her master's in thanatology, and she was the first bereavement counselor at the Villa Marie Claire. And her mother was dying, and she decided she wanted to leave. So she recommended me for the position. 
And it was a huge challenge. But the wonderful thing about it was that the colleagues that I had there were so compassionate and had a lot of experience. And I could really learn from them. And I, I just opened myself up to um, studying what they did, to talking with them, to bringing any issue that I had to either my counseling supervisor or my colleague, the other bereavement counselor who had been a bereavement counselor much longer, um, and to the clinical nurse supervisor or to the medical doctor. They, they, I had a lot of support within the counseling group, and that helped me a lot. But really, all of the study that I did, even the thanatology counseling study at uh, Brooklyn College, did nothing to prepare me for how to help people when they're in the midst of, of having their loved one die and then after for the 13 months of bereavement afterwards. However, because I'm a, a woman of a certain age, I have a long life experience in, that's very varied, and that gave me opportunity to find ways to connect with people in, uh, from different walks of life. So that helped. And then also to just learn how to sit in compassionate presence with, with somebody is, is like, sometimes that's the best thing that you can do is to just be open and allow the person to speak. That was the learning curve for me. I can't imagine what that's like to take home with you. Back, back then it was a big challenge. And I, I only worked uh, three or four days a week um, unless I was on call. And then I had to be around um, in the New York city area for 10 days and that meant, you know, being called out at three in the morning to somebody's home because somebody had died or to be called into the hospital to perhaps try to help a family sign on to hospice. Um, perhaps they were not so willing to do that, which was also challenging. Um. I thought I was handling it very well, but my um, my current husband will tell you that that was not true, <laughs> that I was very, very stressed. And I also found that because it was early on and still not that far out of my own grief experience, I found that I... I was triggered. It was, it was hard for me, especially if perhaps there was somebody who was about to be widowed and I, as a widow, would find a resonance within myself about that. And I have to really work hard to remind myself, this is not about me. This is not about my grief. It's about you. Um, or I remember one time I was called in to attend uh, a death and there, the woman who had died had teenage children, as I did at the time. So that was very hard for me. But on the other hand, you could walk a mile in her shoes. Right. And I think that that has, I have proven to myself that a, some self-disclosure is very, very helpful. I find, I don't go, I don't enter into somebody and say, hi, I'm a widow and now I'm your grief counselor. Right, but right, I right. do find that when people find, when a, a, a grieving person finds out that I too have grieved very strongly, they sort of relax. They feel like, oh, you, you know something of what I'm going through and I feel more comfortable to be able to open up to you. How difficult is it for you, as well as the people you counsel, to find balance in what we're thinking? I deal with it in a few ways. One, I deal with it in the somatic way. Um, having been a dancer my whole life, um, it's very easy for me to try to work things out through the body. So I might notice that a person is talking very much up in their heads, but their body is reacting by uh, shutting down. So they're wrapping their arms around themselves and maybe they're hunching forward. So I might draw their attention to what's happening in their body and ask them to breathe into the parts that feel very tense. And we might even get up and stretch or move around a little bit very gently. And that gets them out of their head and into their body. And there's other grounding things that we can do that will also sort of create that balance between um, what you're thinking and what you're afraid of in your head, but also what you're feeling in your body and in your emotional field. And whether it's a personal loss 
like you and I have had, or this collective nightmare that we're living, anxiety plays such a massive role in this. Yes, it does. And it's very hard to deal with anxiety. And um, talking about anxiety is not the most helpful thing. I think doing something physical or shifting your focus or, you know, drawing out the feelings that you have inside. This is an interesting technique and this, anybody can do this. You don't have to know how to draw. Um, I happen to be a person who can't draw. That's a, a voice in my head. So this is actually an interesting thing to do. If your body is buzzing with anxiety and you, you don't really know where to put it, you can take a piece of paper and some colored crayons or markers, and you can close your eyes and scribble that feeling out on the page. And then take some deep breaths and then open your eyes and look at it and think that the anxiety that was inside of you is now on this page. And if you want, you can crumple it up and toss it into the corner. Wow. That almost gives you control. Exactly. And I think that's one of the biggest problems now. I I have some clients last week, a lot of clients were talking about how they keep being drawn to the news and they know it's not good for them to watch the news all day and to watch the death count go up and it just increases fear and anxiety. And I'm experiencing that too. I'm definitely watching the news way too much. But I think the reason that we do that is because we're trying to control the situation. If I could just know what's happening, then I would feel like I have more control. And the hardest thing with grief and with this situation now in the world is that we don't have control over it. This is something that's happening outside of ourselves. Right. Do you often tell your clients, and do you like to refer to them as clients, by the way? I do. I don't use the word patient because they're not, I'm not a doctor. So um, I use the word client. Have you used the word temporary in terms of their situation? Uh I don't use that word because I don't want it. To, I don't want it to sound dismissive. Like mm-hmm. what you're feeling now is temporary; it'll pass. Yeah. I don't think that's a helpful comment. I do point out that when they say, "I'm never going to feel normal again," "I'm never going to figure out how to live again," I do point out that um, never means not now. It, hmm. it doesn't. It doesn't mean forever, and and we don't know really how we're going to feel later on. And hopefully, if they get through this and they process their grief in effective ways and they begin to find a little more solace and they begin to feel a little more connected in a peaceful way with the person who is gone rather than in this raw emotional, I wish he was here, I wish he was here kind of a way. Over time, things do change. And grief does not feel as raw as it does in the beginning over time. When you're counseling men and women, do you also get very personal? I do sometimes. Yes. And sometimes they'll ask me, you know, did you experience this or what did you do in this case? Um, and, uh, and sometimes I will tell a story of my own experience, not because I want to join with them and say, Oh, look, I'm one of you, but because I want to, I want to show them that I, I have gotten through it and I have come out into this other place. I still miss him terribly. I still wish he was here. I have a new husband and those two things. Um, I hold them both. Um, so I think that I, I use my own personal experience as an example. And what about for your children? What was the process like for you when you were grieving and you also had to comfort them? One thought I had early on is that I wanted the trajectory of their lives to continue. I felt like mine had stopped and that feeling proved to not be true, but it certainly felt that way. Right. My oldest daughter had just finished her sophomore year in college and somewhere in the summer, she said, um, I can't go back to school. And I said, no, that's not true. You are going back to school. So I made sure that she continued on her path. 
my son was in 11th grade and we had my husband husband's memorial on the 18th and his prom was on the 19th. So I made sure that he went to the prom and the only difficulty that I had personally, um, besides that it was hard to go to the photo session, I was really not prepared for that with all the other parents. And my oldest daughter came along with me to sort of whisk me out if I needed to be to be taken away, but mm-hmm. I didn't know how to tie a tie. So my son's getting dressed for the prom and I don't, I'm at a loss. I don't know how to tie his tie. And I started crying because I didn't know how to help him with this. And a man drove up. It was his music teacher. He just drove up spontaneously to my house and gets out of his car and says, hi, I came to see if I can help you. And I said, Joe, can you tie a tie? Because I don't know how to help Evan. And he came in and tied Evan's tie. So, oh my gosh. So, you know, that was one thought I had. I wanted them to continue. And I, I don't know how effective I was. I was quite distressed and distraught. I tried my best and, you know, I certainly had uh, failures along the way, but they've all come out and they're all amazing people. They're all doing really well with their lives. They're um, successful. Two of them are married. One of them has a child. There's another one on the way. There's, there's, uh, it, it's really good. What is it like to counsel children? I, I have worked with children um, occasionally. I, I, I don't feel that it's my forte. Um, with little children, I have, um, I've worked with children as young as three. Um, wow. Wow. I have in my office recently, I've had, uh, I had a little girl who was five who came in and, um, I have a basket of, uh, they're called kimochis. They're actually, you know, like they look like emojis. They're little felt, brightly colored facial expressions. <laughs> they're little puff, little puffs that you can hold in your hand. Mm-hmm. And so, and they have a, a, an emotional word on it, like angry, surprised, lost, sad, all these different words, fearful. So I invited her to pull emotions out of the, uh, the basket that they were in. And th- you know, what, whatever emotion she was feeling at that, at this time. And so she did, she pulled out five or six and she laid them out on the little coffee table that I have. And then she said, there, my emotions are on the table. (laughs) This is a five-year-old? This is a five-year-old. Yes. So her mother had died. So then we talked about, we talked about how she was feeling and, and she had one, she had cheerful in there along with fear and sad. And so we talked about how the different feelings could work with each other. Like she likes to be cheerful. She doesn't feel cheerful very often, but how can that feeling help her when she feels fearful or when she feels sad? And it's how also it's okay to feel sad. I wonder also whether you're a child or an adult, that feeling of this is so unfair. Yes. Yes. And it is unfair. I mean, the only thing I can do with that comment is to validate it. Yes, it is unfair. It is definitely unfair. Also, if somebody, whether it's a child or an adult, says something that sounds like a metaphor, I might say, hey, would you like to just draw that metaphor without worrying about how it looks? So when I was at the Villa Marie Claire, I had a client who talked about her life felt like a whirlpool and she was just being sucked down into the depths and she was afraid of drowning. Wow. So I handed her a piece of paper and I handed her a box of, of crepas and said, what color is your whirlpool? She said, it's black. So then she starts drawing the whirlpool. And I said, well, what's on the other side? She says, well, there's a shore over there, but I can't get there. So then I said, well, how could you get there? So she starts to draw a straight line out of the whirlpool. And I pointed out that you actually can't do that in a whirlpool. You have to go around and around. So she took a different color and she drew herself 
in, in concentric circles, ever widening, out of the whirlpool. And when she was done, she said, I've never tried to do anything like that, but I feel so much better now. Wow. I'm curious, how did the Karuna cards come about? I began developing the cards at the Villa Marie Claire and at Holy Name Hospice because I was always suggesting to clients that they write in their journal or try to look at their grief in a creative way. Um, this comes from uh, my own experience in uh, as a musician and as a dancer and as a creative person my whole life. Whenever I have trouble in my life, I automatically go to creative process, whether that's writing in a journal or drawing or quilting or dancing out how I feel. So it's natural for me to use creative process. So when clients would say to me, oh, I wish I could tell my father this thing. I can't talk to him anymore. I would say, well, you actually can talk to him in your journal. You can use that as a way of communicating. And people were intrigued with the idea of using a journal, but they would say often, I don't know how to start. So I began developing little slips of paper with prompts on them. And then I would offer like five or six little pieces of paper and say, choose one. And if they liked it, then they could take that as their homework and write about it in their journal. And the next time I would see them, we would talk about that if they wanted to. That seemed to be a, a tool that was working well. So I began printing them up on little cards. Um, and they were about 28 to 30 cards when I first started using cards. And then I expanded them to about 40 or so. And then when I offered them to a publisher, we decided to go up to 52 because that's what a normal uh, card deck is. That makes sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there's a lot of different things in there. There are journal prompts and those journal prompts could also be used just for conversation. Like you might pull a card if you want to talk with somebody, you might pull a card and it might say, what do you miss the most or what do you not miss at all? And then that could become a conversation between the two people who are also grieving together. Um, so it becomes a way of, of bringing people together um, and to be able to talk about the person who's gone and also to be able to talk about their own experience. There are other prompts in there. There are prompts for regulating your emotion, for thinking about your future, for um, thinking about the person that is gone and trying to remember how you feel grateful for them or the gifts that you received from them. So they're very open-ended and they're varied. So my my invitation to people is um, shuffle the cards and choose one. And if you like it, then you can do that. And if you don't like it, you can shuffle the cards and choose a different one. Would the cards be apropos in a sense for panic I think there are a number of the Karuna cards that could be very helpful. I mean, I I think that if I were to use them in this time, I probably would pull a few out that may be not so relevant. But I think that any way of processing fear, uncertainty, grief, anxiety can be helped by using a tool like this. And there are cards in there that really do help with the anxiety. There's one about making a mindful cup of tea. So it invites you to really slow down with the process of making tea. And that actually becomes almost a meditative thing. There's another card that talks about walking in nature, but doing it really, really slowly along the concept of the Japanese idea of forest bathing. So the idea is you walk very slowly and you just breathe and you notice what's happening around you. And that can be very centering and grounding for people when they're feeling very anxious. We really need to be very careful with what we say to each other when somebody is grieving. We, we, we have these, these cliches or these things that we think will help. And for many people, they absolutely don't. Yeah, get over it already. Come on. Get over, or you, or this, this is one of my favorites. You just have to be strong. Huh. No, you don't. You mm-hmm. don't have to be strong if you don't feel like you're going to be strong. And also there's strength in just allowing yourself to fall apart. It's okay. 
Yes. And there's also not a time limit to this. Absolutely not. You know, they say time heals all wounds and it doesn't. Claudia, this has been so fascinating. I want to end with you just giving us some advice and helping us soldier on. I think that when we're in a time where we wish that we had control and we realize we don't, sometimes what we need to do is just to be with this moment in time. The fact that we're all having to be home and apart from one another is actually an opportunity for some reflection. It's an opportunity for us to sit back and take a look at our lives. Is this the way we want to be living? Is this rushing around and not paying attention to how we're feeling really that helpful? Or can we slow it down and try to become more connected with ourselves, with the people that we love, with the work that we do in the world? I think we can we can really use this time for that if we are able to. Oh, what a great way to end. But before we do, could you tell our listeners how they can get a hold of your Karuna cards, etc.? Yes. So one way to connect with me is to go to my website, which is www.thecarunaproject.com. And Karuna is spelled K-A-R-U-N-A. What does that mean, Karuna? It means an active compassion. It's a Sanskrit word. That's a combination of compassion and action. So my husband actually wrote this word on the top of all of his letters. And we really didn't know what it meant. But after he died, we looked it up and we thought, well, he was one of the most compassionate people we knew. So my children got it tattooed on them. And I decided that if I ever did anything in the future, I would call it the Karuna Project. So I call it the Karuna Project because I need to exercise a lot of compassion in order to do this work. But also it's connected to him. So the Karuna cards are connected. It's, it's named after him, after this concept that he embodied. There's information on my website about the Karuna cards and about Shattered by Grief, Picking Up the Pieces to Become Whole Again, and about the new book, The Creative Toolkit for Working with Grief and Bereavement, which is coming out on May 21st. And all of these books are available on Amazon and on Barnes & Noble, and the new book is available for pre-order. Well, Claudia, it was a terrific conversation, and it took me back in time also when you and I met for the first time under those incredibly unfortunate circumstances, but this is what life is, you know? Yeah. And we, and yes, we throw out the cliches, but they're cliches because they work. Thank you for what you do because it helps us so much and it only makes the world a better place as we try to live our lives in the best ways that we can. Thank you so much, Sandy. It's great to see you again. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.